One of the foundational principles that I learned in counseling training over the years is that everyone lives out of a sense of identity. Biblical counselor Paul Tripp says, if who I am in Christ doesn't shape the way I think about myself and the things I face, then I'll live out of some other identity. One replacement identity that we take on is difficult life circumstances. While divorce, depression, and single parenthood are significant human experiences, they are not identities. In the same way, our work isn't our identity, even though it's an important part of how God intends us to live. For too many of us, our sense of identity is more rooted in our performance than it is in the grace of God. It's wonderful to be successful at what God has called you to do, but when you use your success to define who you are, you'll always have a distorted perspective. And there are many other types of replacement identities, achievement, acceptance, identity in physical things. The importance of grounding our identity in who God has made and is remaking us to be is so important that as I've mentioned to you over the years, many of the books of the New Testament begin with an explanation of who we are in Christ before ever telling us what it is we're to do for Christ. And when we're in the throes of our battle with life in a fallen world, whether due to our own sin or that of others or just from the difficulties of life in a fallen world, we need friends to remember who we are by remembering who God is and our relationship to Him. When the great Apostle Paul was emotionally mired in the ugliness of his own sin, he said, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. It got so bad that the Apostle cried out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then he comes to himself, as it were, and he remembers who he is and whose he is. And so he says famously, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, the Bible does not present shiny, happy people, even if the marketing of big Eva, big evangelicalism does. The battle with sin and sin's effects is ongoing, and it's all around, and churches and Christians and pastors that do not tell the unvarnished truth about that are failing to see and live in the real world and so are ill-equipped to handle the inevitable advers adversity that comes our way, when, not if, that adversity comes. You need to see it as quite normal, but also to know where to go in your thoughts to put it in biblical perspective. And that is why in our new series in the book of Psalms, we moved from the book's introduction in Psalms numbers 1 and 2, and now today we're going to look at Psalm number 8 in just a bit. But I've asked you to turn to Psalm 3 because in between Psalms 2 and 8, in 3 through 7, 
you have that heavy dose of fallen reality. Immediately after Psalm 2 that we saw last week, in which there is the note of triumph of the ultimate son of the psalmist David, that ultimate son, Jesus Christ, and the promise in the very last phrase of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Immediately after that, if you look at the top of Psalm 3, it says in the superscription just above verse 1, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Well, back to fallen reality. And some of you know the story from 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17 that David's very own son Absalom was out to kill him. Psalm 2 is based on the truth of the covenant that God made with David that David's line would continue until there is a descendant that will sit on David's throne forever. God said to David, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. But in a fallen world, that will not come. It will not come to pass without opposition. And so many of the Psalms are about the enemies of God and of His people. And so Psalm number 3 begins, verse 1, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And then Psalm number 4 begins, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God, give me relief from my distress. Number 5, listen to my words, Lord, consider my lament, hear my cry for help. Psalm 6, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. So now it's, not, it's no longer only about the problems that are caused by others, it's the problems I've caused by my own sin. And then the beginning of Psalm 7, Lord my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. The wicked are in the very first psalm, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. They're in psalm number 2, and we see now that they are in psalms 3 through 7. One author says, if you pay attention as you read through any psalm, the wicked are there. In fact, just the basic root of the Hebrew word for wicked appears 90 times in the psalms, and that doesn't even include other synonyms like sinners, scornful, enemies, foes, wicked, and so on. In fact, fewer than 30 of the Psalms do not mention these kinds and categories of people. Shiny, happy people. Yeah. Not this side of heaven. And the Bible presents that truthfully and accurately. And so the Psalms have a lot of lament because they're honest about life. In fact, lament is one type of psalm along with hymns and what are called royal psalms that were recited and performed in the presence of kings or dignitaries, thanksgiving psalms, wisdom psalms, and some of them are a mixture. But the lament psalms are the most numerous. They comprise over a third of the entire collection of 150. But in the midst of the honesty, like Paul in Romans 7 and 8, you have glimmers of light and that's what we have in Psalm number 8. 
Despite the harassment of King David and what theologians call the Davidi, that is the descendants of David sitting on his throne, and the persecution of David's ultimate son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the people of God throughout the centuries, despite all of that, God will win and we will win with Him. And that's what Psalm number 8 reminds us of in the midst of the darkness of Psalms 3 through 7. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word, the truth that means authenticity, genuineness. It's real. It tells us about life the way it really is. And the book of Psalms teaches us to sing about life as it really is. When sorrows like sea billows roll. And so thank you for your truth. Thank you for giving it to us and allowing us this time together now to look into it and its application to our lives. Grant us attentive minds, open hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in the midst of the junk of life, you have to remember your identity, your, your place, which is only seen clearly in our relationship to God and His plan for His people. And so I say in the outline that you should have received when you came in, we find our place under God's purpose. In addition to the woes of Psalms 3 through 7 that precede this psalm, notice the superscription for Psalm number 8. For the director of music, according to Getith, a psalm of David. The Hebrew word Getith means an instrument from Gath. Gath is a city that's significant for the setting of the psalm for two reasons. You may remember that Gath is the city from which Goliath had come and David slew when he was young. But secondly, in the years since, some soldiers from Gath had joined King David's military. 2 Samuel 15 says that 600 soldiers from Gath accompanied David as he fled from his son Solomon. It says the king set out with all the people following him all his men and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath. So it appears that when this song was sung using an instrument from Gath, it would remind of the triumph over Goliath, but more recently the threat from Absalom. And David focuses precisely where we need to in order to see ourselves and our circumstances accurately, namely in verse 1, Lord, our Lord. Where do you look when, not if, you're in the throes of the adversity of a fallen world? Lord, our Lord. You have the same thing in verse 9 so that the psalm ends exactly as it began with that note of praise enveloping verses 2 through 8 and giving the purpose for all of it. And notice the two words, Lord, in verse 1. One in all capital letters, the other with only the capital L. And that's because they're translating two different Hebrew titles for God. The first, in all caps, is Yahweh. That's the personal name of God for His people. Given when God called Moses to go to Egypt to free His people from bondage. 
On that occasion, Exodus chapter 3 says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The name Yahweh is related to the Hebrew verb to be, I am. And you may remember that the Lord Jesus applied this to himself when he said to his religious opponents, before Abraham was born, I am. And then the Bible says that this they picked up stones to stone him because they considered it blasphemy because they understood that he was equating himself with God. The other title, Lord, with the capital L and then the small letters, is a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, which refers to God's lordship over all his creation. God as sovereign master and king. Lord, our Lord. My personal God who is Lord over all. And then verse 1 says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. The name is God's character. And that's why when Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be, holy be, set apart be your name. That is your character. May, be it, may it be extolled. So the name is God's character, the nature of the, the Lord. His nature is majestic in all the earth. And the point is not that all people in the earth know the Lord or acknowledge His power and His glory, but rather that the faithful know and acknowledge that He's the mighty sovereign over all. The last part of verse 1 says, You have set your glory in the heavens. Many translations say you have set your glory above the heavens. One commentator has said this means, as David's son Solomon would say later in his great prayer at the dedication of the temple, The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And the reason the creation, wonderful as it is, cannot exhaust the glory of God is that God is its maker. So although creation expresses His glory, revealing His existence and His wisdom and His great power, as well as other of His attributes, it's only a partial revelation of the surpassingly greater God who stands behind it. If God has set His glory above the heavens, it's certain that nothing under the heavens can praise Him adequately. Yet this is what men and women have the privilege of doing. We find our place under God's purpose, and God's purpose is always and at all times for all people to praise Him, to glorify Him with their lips and their lives. Secondly, We find our place under God's power. Because God can cause even children and infants to carry out His work. Verse 2 says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. That is, God has ordained that children will praise Him from the earliest ages and drown out, as it were, the false teaching and opposition of people who've outgrown their natural understanding that we are creatures of the Creator God. 
Children instinctively know and ask about God. Parents, am I right about that? Children instinctively know and ask about God, but apart from a work of grace, as they grow up and become wiser in their own eyes, they abandon such childish things. They suppress what they know about God, according to Romans chapter 1. And we see such an encounter in the life of Jesus. In Matthew 21, we're told when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked. I mean, there's how loud they're saying it. They're shouting it, but there's also what they're saying. They're saying that you, they're giving praise to you as the son of, of David. The religious leaders were jealous of the attention Jesus was getting. They were annoyed by the volume from the children who were told were shouting. One preacher said Jesus had entered Jerusalem in triumph on what we call Palm Sunday. While he was in the temple area healing the blind and lame who came to him, the children who had observed the triumphal entry continued to praise him, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. And this made the chief priests and the teachers of the law indignant. But Jesus replied, and when he replied, he referred to Psalm 8. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? <laughs> From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. If these leaders of the people had been indignant before, they must have been catatonic at this point. Because by identifying the praise of the children of Jerusalem with Psalm number 8, Jesus not only validated their words, showing them to be proper, He was indeed the Son of David, the Messiah. He also interpreted their praise as praise not of a mere man, which a son of David is, but of God, since the psalm says God has ordained praise for Himself from children's lips. And further, Jesus also placed the scribes and the teachers who resisted His claims to be this unique Son of God in the category of the foes and the avengers that Psalm number 8 speaks of. And so He's identifying them as God's enemies when they thought they were God's special people simply because of who they were. So we find our place under God's purpose, and we find our place under His power. That is, God can cause the rocks to cry out. He can cause infants to give Him praise. He can do anything that He determines to do, and we need to remember that at all times, friends. I want to spend some more time on the third point in your outline. We find our place under God's rule. We are, of course, as is all creation, under God's rule, and as such, we are comparatively, I say in the outline, insignificant. Because verse 3 says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? 
The late and great Presbyterian preacher James Boyce said of this, when the psalmist thinks of the glory of God exceeding the greatness of creation and so thinks of creation, he is struck with how small man is by comparison. I suppose this beautiful section of the psalm grew out of David's memory of lying in the fields at night staring at the stars in the days when he cared for his family's sheep. Not many of us have this experience today. Most of us live where light from a city blocks out most of the star's light. But if you live in the country, you know how majestic the heavens really are. And this was especially true for David. In the east, the air is very clear, and for those who look up at them, the stars seem to be almost overwhelming in number and to hang nearly within reach of the outstretched arm of the observer. What is man that you are mindful of him, asked David, when he recalled the stars' vast array? And sometimes we experience this emotion too. True, we do not often have David's opportunities to lie back and wonder at the heaven's greatness, but we have our scientific knowledge and know at least mathematically much more than David did. We know that the earth, which is vast enough, is only a small planet in a relatively small solar system toward the outer edge of one of billions of solar systems in the universe. And we know something of the distances. We know that light coming to us from the most distant parts of the universe takes billions of years to get here. In fact, even within our solar system, the distances are great. We've had spacecraft reach Neptune, the last of four planets that it passed and photographed on its astonishing voyage to, to outer space. Neptune is not even the outermost of the planets. Pluto is beyond it. But the radio waves sent back to Earth from Neptune at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, took four hours to get here. So a single set of communications from Earth to the spacecraft and back to us took one-third of a day. So friends, how small we are in this vast cosmic setting. How astonishing that the God of this vast universe, the God who made it and orders it, should think of us and care for us. Remember that in the midst of your stuff. Remember that in the midst of what's going on. We are compared to God insignificant, but He has assigned a role for us that I say in your outline is blessedly indispensable. Remember that the introduction to the book of Psalms in the first two is focused on blessing. Psalm number one starts with that very word, the very first word of the Psalter. Blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 ends with it. And so they are an inclusio. They bookend each other. The book of Psalms is about the blessed life in the midst of the fallenness around us. And that blessed life goes back to the creation of humanity. So what David is talking about in, in Psalm number 8 then, and throughout the Psalms, and this blessed life that God tells us how to pursue, goes all the way back to God's original design for all of humanity. It goes back to creation. Genesis chapter 1, 
God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, God said. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So why is God, according to this, making us in his image? So that, here's the purpose. So that they can do this. So that they can rule. God made humanity to rule. And he made humanity in his image so that we, humanity, would rule for him. That's the so that, the purpose clause. That we were made to rule on God's behalf is what is called the dominion mandate. The command, that's what mandate means, to have dominion over God's creation. Now I went through some of this in our recent mini-series on heaven, so please forgive the repetition. The connection between the image and this mandate to serve God by ruling His affairs on His behalf is explained by one theologian who says the word image refers to representation. The God who is spirit creates a representative in physical form. Just as an ancient king would place an image of himself in an area of his realm to show his sovereignty, God makes man in his image to represent him in the newly created world. And so image has kingship implications. Yet in this case, these representations, rather than being lifeless statues in the middle of a city perhaps, we are living, breathing human beings. While God is the king, he created man as a king, a vice regent and mediator over the creation. The term likeness indicates man is in relationship with God. He is a son of God. Because man is a son of God, he's able to represent God. And so sonship is closely connected to rulership. The assignment that humanity received in Adam was to serve as God's vice regents on earth. God, or Adam was told to, in verse 28 of Genesis 1, it says, God blessed them and said to them, I don't have that part for you, I should. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice that humanity, sorry I don't have it up there, but God blessed them and said to them, we are blessed to have this dominion mandate given to us by the king of creation and given to all humanity. That is, this mandate was not required of just Adam and Eve alone, but rather as they are fruitful, as they increase in number, as they fill the earth, it will be taken up by their posterity. Ruling for God on His behalf is the blessed life spoken of in Psalms. And the word for rule in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 is the same one that's used in another Psalm, Psalm number 110, of the Messiah Himself. Psalm 110 says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, and here's the same word that humanity was given rule in the midst of your enemies. And the word for subdue speaks of the work of a king. 
2 Samuel 8 says, King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had, notice, same word, subdued. So man is God's image bearer created to rule the earth on God's behalf. So in the midst of all the stuff, remember God's purpose, you remember God's power. And then we remember what it is that God has for us to to carry out, to rule on His behalf. We are indispensable in God's plan because He has made us to be. But, in your outline, we have spectacularly failed. The truth of the matter is humanity doesn't do this, right? The reason is, right shortly after, God gave this dominion mandate to humanity, you all know the story. God gave opportunity for us to show, when I say us, the Bible speaks of us as Adam's sin is our sin. And so God gave us the opportunity to show that we were indeed going to rule on His behalf as we were made to do, but instead... We chose to rule on our own behalf rather than God's. And the temptation that says you will be like God was more important than the mandate that the true and living God has given. And so from that point on now, Adam's progeny has continued to fail to do what we were created to do to rule on God's behalf. Next week, I want to devote our time showing the string of people that God brought along throughout Israel's history to potentially lead a people in ruling on His behalf. But all of them failed. And to this day, outside of Jesus Christ, humanity continues to spectacularly fail because of sin. We failed in our assigned role as God's rulers on the earth, But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. I say in your outline, we have vicariously prevailed. Because there's someone who is our vicar, our substitute. And we prevail not on our own, but we prevail because Jesus succeeded where we failed. Verse 4 asks, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Please notice the parallelism between mankind and son of man. Because when you read verse 4, since son of man is a title given to the Lord Jesus, you could easily think that that's referring to, to Him. But son of man here refers to all humanity, mankind and Son of Man are parallel with each other. That's the way Hebrew poetry is written. And so it's talking about us. That's what we were made to do. It's not talking about Jesus in that instance. And in verse 5, it goes on to talk about us. You have made them, humanity, us, verse 5, a little lower than the angels and crowned them, humanity, us, with glory and honor. You made them, that would be us, Rulers over the works of your hands, you put everything under their feet. That would again be us. But we have, I say, vicariously prevailed 
Because this passage from Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6, there is a place where someone has testified. That's the way the writer of Hebrews says it. There is a place. Well, that place turns out to be Psalm 8. And then quotes, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him. It shows the author's familiarity with the Bible when he can just say there is this, this place and then recall it. And then goes on to cite the passage from Psalm 8. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. But then adds this comment in putting everything under them God left nothing that is not subject to them. So we, humanity, were given everything by God, under us, nothing accepted. The writer of Hebrews summarizes that everything leaves nothing that man is not ruler over other than God himself. In fact, Psalm 8 and verse 6 says God put everything under man's feet, and then it goes on in verses 7 and 8, if you take a look, Psalm number 8, verse 7 it includes all flocks and herds and the animals of the field, birds in the air, fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. That, friends, is what we were created for, and yet something happened in paradise to make it paradise lost so that, the writer of Hebrews says in one of the great understatements in all of the Word of God, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. That would be us. Yet at present, it would appear we messed everything up. So what is the solution? Thanks be to God, the writer of Hebrews goes on. And he doesn't just leave it at, we mess things up. But says immediately thereafter, but we do see Jesus. What's the solution? We see Jesus. Why is Jesus the solution? Because he was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor. So Jesus came as a human being, became fully man so that he can carry out the mandate of humanity that we failed to do and be our substitute in so doing. And why is he now crowned with glory and honor? Because he suffered death. How does suffering death mean you get to be crowned with glory and honor? Here's how. What that's saying is that unlike the first Adam, the last Adam obeyed. He came on a mission to die for his people's sins, and he completed the mission. And because he did that, because he suffered death in obedience to God the Father, now then he is crowned with glory and honor that we were designed to have originally so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And what it means, friends, is that our purpose is found in Jesus Christ. Our purpose is realized in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate son of David. He is the one who is sitting at the right hand of the Father now and will return to earth and establish David's kingdom on earth. 
And the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, 2 Timothy 2, 12, we will reign with Him. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, we will reign with Him. Now, when we did that mini-series on heaven, some of you were surprised when I said heaven is temporary and that we would be active in the kingdom and in the eternal state. What we currently think of heaven, where you go if you were to die this afternoon, that's a temporary place because Christ is going to return to a new heaven and a new earth. And He's going to reign here, and we are going to reign with Him actively. And so if we're to understand passages like Psalm number 8 and rejoice in them as we're designed to do, then we've got to lose what one has called the Christoplatonism. Platonism, the idea that matter is bad, the physical universe is bad, only the spiritual is good. The truth is God likes matter, friends. He made it. So we are not platonic dualists. This is the secular philosophy of Plato, that the material world is bad, it's evil, and only the invisible spiritual world is good. And there were Christian church fathers in the early years of the church that took up the ideas of Platonism. They tried to read them into the Bible. They made the Bible appear to be condemning the physical material world. And you can't really do that authentically with Scripture. God looked at the world that He had made after the sixth day of creation, and He said, Behold, it was very good. He approved of His whole creation, all of it, the food we eat, the plants, the water, the animals, marital sex. It's good and made by God for good purposes. Then sin came into the world. And it's not that sin made these things bad, it's that we fell as human beings and started to misuse and idolize some of those things. The teaching of Scripture is not that we'll be delivered from a material world and material bodies, but that ultimately we will live as resurrected beings in a resurrected universe for all eternity. We'll enjoy the goodness of God in the material realm just as we do in the spiritual realm. In fact, those two realms will be brought together forever in the eternal incarnate, that is bodily, Christ on the new earth. He will be in human form forever, reigning on the throne of the new Jerusalem with Him as King of kings and us as kings, lowercase k, reigning under Him. So in God's renewed, resurrected, redeemed creation, we will serve and worship Him forever. Friends, in the midst of all the junk, remember your identity and remember your destiny. Here's your take-home truth. We were made to rule for God, and we will reign with Christ. Now, we're going to bow and pray, but in order for this to be true, for order for this to be a comfort to you in the midst of the inevitable adversity of a fallen world, then you must be attached to Jesus Christ in relationship to Him so that what He has substituted to do for us is applied to you. So how does that happen? At a point in time, for me at the age of 19, you have to have a time where you have come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've acknowledged that you have failed in what you were designed to do. You've sinned. And so you realize that you are a sinner. You recognize that Christ died for your sin. You repent. Lord, I see what I'm supposed to be. I want to go your way, not my way. 
By your grace, I commit to doing so. And you receive Jesus Christ. When we pray now, you have an opportunity to do that. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the realism of your word. That it is not all about shiny, happy people. But rather, life in a fallen world is difficult, and none of us, none of us gets out of it unscathed. And Lord, each of us came into this room with various burdens and things going on in our lives. I pray that my brothers and sisters will never lose sight of their identity in you and the purpose that you have given your image bearers, those that you are remaking into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, to see him as the means to the restoration of what we were made to do. And so I thank you for giving me a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, my King, my Savior, my Redeemer. And Lord, I thank you for all the brothers and sisters in whose lives you have worked to do that very thing. And Lord, we will give you the honor and the praise for those that you call out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment, seeing that they too, like all of us, have failed to achieve the purpose for which you have made them. And it'll only be realized in the Lord Jesus. Cause them to come to yourself, and we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.